Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware. There's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl. Looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal. Feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. Welcome to Yowie Central, everyone. You're listening to 94.9 Main FM, and I'm Sarah. We're jumping straight into it today, folks. I had a lovely chat with Will and Tom from the American podcast, Creek Devil, just last week. Will Jevning is a renowned Bigfoot researcher and author of several books on the subject. They are both dedicated Bigfoot researchers and have some absolutely fascinating stories to tell and insights to share with us. We ended up chatting for over an hour, so part one this week and part two next week. Here's Tom and Will. Why don't we start with, I'd love to hear from both of you, um, I think I'd love to I'd love you to tell the yeah we said your listeners about Creek Devil about your show, um, but also about how you got into this field because it's a pretty bizarre field when you when you think about it. So it'd be amazing to to hear from you as to how you got into it. So who wants to go first? Well, I think go ahead, Tom. No, 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 no. It's Will because you have the historic precedence, the background. Well, okay. I, I guess as far as getting into this subject, uh, it goes back, it'll be 49 years in December. So I'm kind of dating myself here. Um, <laughs> uh, well, a buddy of mine, I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell the story. A buddy of mine and I, he came over to spend the weekend. You know, my parents 
uh, our parents back in those days, they weren't going to shuttle kids all over like they do today, right, to visit their pals. So you had to get creative and figure out how you were going to get to your friends, and you had to go for a weekend usually uh, because you had to ride the school bus to, on, on that person's bus to their house, and then you come back to school on Monday and, you know, go home, right? But uh, so my friend Mark come over, and it snowed. So there wasn't much to do around our place, and we lived on a farm and uh, lots of forest around the area. So we thought we'll go over to our friend John's house, lived about a mile away, and maybe we, the three of us could come up with something to do. And we were at the, the ripe old age of 14 at that time. So we couldn't find the trail through the forest because of the snow. So we decided to walk down the, the road, and then there was a, a railroad line that went through the forest, and that ran right in front of John's house, so we decided to take that. We got about three-quarters of the way to John's house. Now, this was pretty heavily heavy canopy forest, you know, and uh, we saw – you can only see the rails. They were the only thing bare, snow-covered, everything else. So we were walking along, and, and we see something red between the rails ahead of us. So we walk up there to see what it was, and here's this pile of animal intestines. You know, and they were from what looked like to be about, I guess, what would be a medium-sized dog or a coyote, something like that. And we're kind of scratching our heads thinking, well, how did this get here? Because there's no footprints of any kind of animal anywhere. The snowfield was blank. So I said, well, shoot, we can't see anything. There's nothing to the right of us. You could see in this open field. Uh, nothing, obviously, the way we came. So I said, well, you, you keep going down the tracks a ways, and I'll climb this embankment up over here to the left and see if I can see anything. So that's what we did. And as soon as I got to the top of that, it was 8 or 10 feet up, and, and the snow was chewed up with footprints. So I hollered at him. I said, hey, come up here and look at this. So we're standing there with our mouths hanging open looking at all these footprints, and they were, they were like giant human bear footprints. Well, giant, they were probably, you know, a foot and a half long each. They were pretty good size. And while we were looking, it, it kind of dawned on me that the intestines weren't frozen yet. And it was about, uh, gee, 17 degrees Fahrenheit that morning, so it was cold. And, and anything out in that temperature were frozen fairly quick, and they weren't frozen. So I surmised that whatever did that was pretty close by still. So that scared us. We took off running for John's house. We're up there pounding on his door. And, you know, John had two younger brothers and two younger sisters. So all these kids and all this pandemonium going on, and his dad come out of the back room and he says, you know, boy, settle down. What's going on? And so we told him. And he went and grabbed a forty-five pistol and a camera. And he says, take me back there and show me what you found. So off goes this gaggle of kids and and. Mr. Adams, and uh, he's taking pictures, and, you know, of course, we're all milling all around all over the place. I think we destroyed all but one or two of the tracks just from walking around them. <laughs> and uh, he starts telling us what he thinks this is. Now, this is 1972, so there wasn't a whole lot of information. It wasn't like it is today. You know, the public wasn't flooded with Bigfoot stuff. So we're thinking, wow, there's real monsters out here in the woods, you know, that kind of excited us. So we were out in the woods for every weekend after that for some time looking. We never saw anything else. And uh, two years later, in the fall of 1974, my dog was just raising all kinds of fuss. You know, we had to tie him to his doghouse at night because he liked to go to the neighboring farms and get in trouble. So <laughs> we, had to we had to tether him at night. And right 
right before dark, he was just going crazy. So my dad always told me, he said, you know, if there's something that comes in the yard, and then we used to have a lot of skunks and raccoons and all kinds of things, porcupine and stuff would come in the yard after the dog and cat's food. So he said, shoot, shoot anything that comes in the yard because it might be rabid. So I grab, you know, grab a 22 instead of my hunting rifle or my shotgun. And I go out with a couple of bullets and I grab the dog. And I said, go get him. And he runs out to the tree line and he freezes and he was a collie, so he never he never froze ever. He would always just dash headlong into the timber. Got in the porcupine twice for that reason. Um, so he stopped, and I got about halfway to him, maybe 50 to 100 feet away from him. And he was just standing rigid at the edge of the tree line, staring in there. And he wheeled around and come running back past me at top speed. And he ran clear back to the house, and he's sitting up on the porch, shivering. I thought, what's that crazy dog doing? <laughs> you know, so I thought, well, you know, maybe he learned his lesson with the porcupine the first time and they had enough. So I walk up to the tree line and I chambered around and I could hear something in there moving. I couldn't see in there, but I could hear something moving. And I thought, okay, you know, so I had the rifle in one hand. I pushed through the, the fur limbs. Uh, I think that was Doug fur in the area there at the time. I pushed through the limbs that were hanging down to get into this clearing. And as I entered the clearing, about 15 or 20 feet in front of me is this massive creature standing there. And it's moving the leaves around with its right foot. And I just thought, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it was, it, it's, it, you can't just put it into words. You know, what would go through your mind in, in just a moment or two in a situation like that. But this thing was, uh, you know, I was, I was 16 at the time, so I was pretty close to being full-grown I guess I must have been 5'9", five, 5'10", five, at that time. Still had a couple inches to grow. But uh, this thing was a good two feet higher than me. You know, the shoulders were four or five feet across, and it had to be at least at least 800 pounds, I estimated, from my hunting experience. And when it saw me, it stopped moving, and it was just, I stared at it, it stared back. And I thought... Oh my God, you know, what is this? And then it dawned on me, oh, that must be one of the things that made the footprints we found two years before. And uh, I thought, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, because I'm pretty close to this thing. It's just standing there not doing anything, but I, I didn't get the impression it was very happy with my being there. So I thought, I'll shoot in the air. Maybe it'll scare it away. So I did that. It didn't move. So I hear a little noise to my right rear. And while I'm trying to keep an eye on it, you know, I kind of, and you're trying to look, you know, at the direction of the noise at the same time uh, from behind some brush. Here comes another one out from behind this brush, and it walked over and stood next to the first one. It was a little smaller, about a head shorter and, and, and lighter. And I thought, that's now that's it. I did what the dog did. I took off running, you know, hoping they weren't chasing me down. So that's how I got my start into the subject. Yeah, wow. And what did you, did you go back and tell your family after that? Oh, you know, after we found the tracks in 1972, my parents and sisters all laughed me out of the house, <laughs> you know. So when I had the encounter, I didn't say a word. I, I quietly got on the telephone. I called my friend John, told him what happened. And, and he and his brothers and another friend of ours all agreed to meet at my house the following morning before first light and we took our hunting rifles 
and we tracked them there. We tracked the two creatures for geez, well over a mile before, um, and the tracks were in, it, it froze really hard that night. So, uh, the frost was pretty, almost like snow, you know, so, the, so that's what we followed the tracks in. And when the sun came up and it melted the frost, so we lost the trail, but, um, a friend of mine actually, you know, we didn't talk about it. A friend of ours overheard us talking quietly one, one afternoon on the school bus. And uh, he, was, he was a guy who didn't really have any friends and, and didn't socialize with anybody. So he wanted to talk to me about it and interview me. I thought, well, okay, it's not going to go anyplace. Well, that summer of 1975, here comes, you know, world-famous Bigfoot hunter Rene DeHinden up knocking on the door. And uh, he had, my friend Jim had written John Green of British Columbia. And Green and DeHinden were in the Puyallup, Washington area, uh, looking into the uh, the Puyallup Screamer incidents that were going on in the early 70s there. So I got to know those guys, ended up becoming friends with them. And uh, that was sort of my entry into the whole subject. So, so it started as a as a young man, and you, you've kind of not deviated from it. Then, in in this time, you're still you're still fascinated by it. You're still researching. Forty nine years later, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. that's amazing. With regards to Renee de Hinden and, and John Green, do you want to share with the, the Yowie Central listeners might not have heard of of them? Yeah, you know, in the in. The whole subject of Bigfoot, at least this part of the world, was all localized stories. You know, it didn't hit, you know, the major news outlets and go everywhere, you know, like things do today. I mean, for hundreds of years, stories were, you know, where the creatures were seen, encountered, and it was just localized, you know, probably more local interest kind of stories. You know, they didn't, the stories didn't go out anywhere. So, Rene DeHinden emigrated from Switzerland uh, in the, in the mid-1950s, and he was working for a dairy farmer on the East Coast. And they were having breakfast or lunch one day, and, and they had the radio on. And the story about, you know, these people going over to uh, Nepal to look for the Yeti, and, and that caught Rene's interest. And, and he said to the farmer, he says, why wouldn't that be interesting to go do that? And the farmer just kind of I don't think, I think Renee said he didn't even look up. He says, well, you don't have to go that far. They got those things out in British Columbia. (laughs) So (laughs) a year later, Renee packs up and he moves to British Columbia. Right. And he wanted, he started delving into it, looking at every resource he could to see if it was just, you know, made up story, some kind of a, you know, boogeyman story, or if it was something real. And he determined through all of his research, talking to people and, and digging up information that there was enough to warrant a serious look into the matter. And uh, he met John Green, who was uh, a local newspaper editor, and uh, the two of them started uh, looking into the subject. And then, of course, things in California, in Northern California here, uh, in the 1950s with Bluff Creek, you know, began to happen around 1958. So that sort of propelled them into the forefront of this. And and those two men were really the ones who are the original pioneers of the subject. Yes, yes, they are, aren't they? And imagine how much more difficult it would have been to 
to find and speak to witnesses to to do that research uh, and interview people who've who've seen these beings without the the modern technology that we and the internet that we have today. Oh yeah, I, I still remember you know writing letters to everybody and you know into those guys and it was it was very slow and and uh, difficult process. Yeah, and and so Tom. How, what's your story? <laughs> How did you, okay. uh, I, well, as you, as you just Tom from Creek Devil, I couldn't do any research on you because you're, so you're, I'm a, Shanghai'd him. <laughs> you're a <Yeah>. mystery man. <laughs> well, here's, here's, here's the deal with me. I got to say that really in so many ways, and I, I will not have talked about this. I've told him this, that, you know, in many ways, Actually, the topic seemed to find me and not the other way around, and certainly in the beginning. But actually, my experience with the, with, uh, with the subject only began in 2017. I was um, with a friend of mine. I, I got a hold of him. I said, hey, hey man, come on. It was uh, middle of December. I said, let's go get a Christmas tree. And there's a certain type of tree that's really, really nice. If you're going to go cut a wild tree and not a, um, you know, a plantation, a farmed tree that's been pruned to look like just the perfect Christmas tree, uh, you got you want to get one called a noble fir. And so I called up this friend of mine. I said, "Come on, man, let's 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 go. You know, it's five bucks. You go into the forest, you get a uh, permit for five bucks, and you get a tree." And I, I suggested one area, and he goes, no, nah, we're not going to go up there. We're going to go to this other place. And I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. I hadn't been there actually in years, you know, decades, about three decades or more. So I said, okay, sure, we'll go there. So we went up there, and it, actually it was, it was pretty nice because it's very, very unpopulated. And it's – you go to this very, very tiny town – in Oregon, and then you go east for miles, and and then you work your way up and up and up into the into the Cascade Mountains. So we get up there, and and I kind of you know I got my Christmas tree. It's a noble fir. It's absolutely perfect. And coming back, and I'd been listening to this guy named Will Jevening for some time. I was kind of interested in the topic, and I think I'd even bought one of his books as he talked about this thing called tree breaks. <clears throat> so as we're driving back, I saw one of those tree breaks and I was like, you know what? I'm going to come back here and check that out in springtime because it was all the other trees are perfect. There's no, it wasn't a snow break. It was a real fresh tree and it just met all the criteria, but I didn't say anything. So, uh, anyway, long story short, we're, it's, uh, it's, pretty dark at this point and now we're driving down into the forest canopy and trying to get down to out of the snow uh, out of the snow zone and one of the tires on my truck was in what i call a state of deferred maintenance it it, it didn't have a lot of tread so it, it wasn't doing good in the snow so i was like no 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 we got it we got to get i want to get out of the snow zone i want to stay this is not the place I want to run off the road because nobody will ever find you. So anyway, long story short, we finally get to a place where I'm pretty sure we're out of the snow zone. Get underneath and 
we only had one flashlight between us. And Will, does this sound vaguely familiar? You know, only it, one it was flashlight. The whole history, the whole history <laughs> we had doing all this for years. <laughs> and, and usually with, with bad batteries, batteries, right? Of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, clearly, 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 neither of you went to scouts. <laughs> Always be I prepared. Did. You and, did. <laughs> and it was, yeah. No, was I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, and it wasn't even a flashlight. It was a headlamp that I had. So I'm over there and I'd hand it to him and we're underneath the truck and it's cold. It's dark. It's wet. It's miserable. And we're handing this thing back and forth and trying to, and it's a, a new type of snow chain. So it's like, how the, how the flip do these things? I don't know. Oh, you got to do, okay, you do that. All right. Yeah. So we're doing that sort of thing. And I finally get mine unhooked and then you got to back the truck up and then you get the chain out. And I'm standing behind the truck, and I'm really fixated on getting these chains back in the bag. I want to go home. I want to get the tree up. It's cold. It's wet. It's pitch black. But for grins and giggles, and I don't know why, but I just picked up this piece of wood, this dry piece of pine, and I went thock, thock on a tree just for the heck of it. And I knew nothing would happen because that's what happened, nothing. <clears throat> so I'm back behind my truck, stuffing the chains away. And about two or three minutes go by, and we hear this loud, piercing whistle from the darkness. And, it, and seriously, it's as, almost as loud as a car horn, maybe even as loud as a car horn. And it's probably 20 feet away. And we're in an area where there's nothing there's one road in one road out there's no way it's not a person if it was a person they would have had to have come 40 miles through the national forest to get to that spot no it's not a person and my buddy goes what was that and he may have phrased it a bit differently <laughs> uh, with a word and, rhyming with truck yeah <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Rhymes a truck, and um, and he's you know he's a school teacher. So in the off season, he would run forest crews in this up in this area. So he's very familiar with it. He's not really bothered by anything in the woods. And to be honest with you, I was so fixated on stuffing the chains that I heard the loud shrieking whistle. And it didn't mean a thing to me until I heard him go. What was that? I was like. Yeah. Yeah, what was that? That was not a bird. And then your mind starts going, it wasn't a bird, it wasn't a person. So what was that? So when we got back and after Christmas, I I don't will, I don't know how, but somehow I got your email address. I heard you on on a podcast somewhere or something like that. So I wrote him. And about I don't know, a little while later, he wrote back and said, hey, do you want to come on the show? And I thought, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a small price to pay to get the answer because that's all I wanted. I just wanted an answer. I wanted the truth. And, you know, I gave him the whole story that I just gave you. And and he said, uh, and I, I don't remember how you phrased it well, but basically you said that it was the most common sound at the Native Americans, at the Sonomish Indians, 
actually put in their totem poles that it's they called them night whistlers from that point on I, I i knew that's what it was yeah whistling whistling was a key feature uh when you look at native american art here in north america especially the wood carved ceremonial masks when you see the pursed lips um and it, it usually indicates the, the wild man or wild woman of the forest and that that's whistling lips it, whistling was what the natives said that they did i think i've seen is it the jinaqua the uh, yeah from british columbia is it british columbia um right right yeah yeah or Van- vancouver that's british columbia isn't it yeah yeah that's right I, I i think i've seen some of those those totem those masks with the with the pursed lips yeah you can look them up and and, and native uh, galleries there it's a fairly common feature yeah and I think we, we the 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 Yowies are in Australia are reported to make similar sounds, which is interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 So that's one of the reasons we found it so interesting talking to you and, and all the other folks, Annie and Daryl and and um, the truck driver's name Baz, <laughs> and the other folks we spoke with. You know, there's just a lot of parallels that mirror what's going on with the creatures with the Yowies. And the Bigfoot, a year later, exactly one year later, I went back to the same area to get another Christmas tree for two reasons. Now, I'm going to get the same Christmas tree because they're pretty awesome, okay? Five bucks, you know, <laughs> and you go up in the woods, it's a lot of fun. But the other reason is, is, hey, now I'm going to, I'm going to check out, look for other stuff. And my this is a different friend of mine and I, we, we stopped at the... Uh, I'm not going to say what it is. It was just a federal facility that deals with the forest. Right. And at the, at the time, there was a power outage. So there's no power in the entire town, including this facility, but it's still open. So I, I go in there and there's nobody in there. And my buddy goes in, he uses a restroom. And I knew one of the gals who worked there because I always go in there and, you know, pick up materials and stuff. And... They had a, uh, a Sasquatch thing on the wall. I was like, wow, okay, all right. They're kind of open about this. And we chatted and talked away, and I said, you know, I, I ran into one of those things last year, actually at this time getting a Christmas tree. And she stopped. Like she'd just been it – was, it wasn't fun and games anymore. And I told her the location, and she goes, yeah, up there, there's a lot of them. It's like, whoa, she came right out and said it. (laughs) Um, So I went up there probably about five or six months later after the snow, because that year it was just, there's no getting up there whatsoever. I'd burn new tires. You're still not getting up there with chains. But I went up there in the springtime with my buddy, and we went up to a certain location. Actually, Will, I sent you the picture of a stump that had been shredded. Yeah, right. Remember that? And you're like, well, go back there and look around. Look on the ground. Oh, there's a brilliant idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, do some real research. You know, I, I had to have been the, the worst Bigfoot researcher there was. So <laughs> you anyway, called yourself my... a scout. <laughs> yeah. So, right, exactly. So I go back there with my buddy. And within 60 seconds, I find my first foot, 
footprint. And I'd never seen one before. And I'm like, I know what I'm seeing, but I called my buddy over. I said, hey, get over here. Take a look at this. What do you think? And he looked and he's like, yeah, it's undeniable. I mean, it's it's uh, inch and a half deep and, and the forest stuff, it's all these pine needles and, you know, you can jump as hard as you want and you're not going to make any kind of an impression. And this is like an inch and a half impression in the ground. And then we found a bunch of them all over the place. And, and I'm not going, oh, yeah, we found them. I'm like, I can never come back here again. It, it's a great place to go fishing. It's a beautiful spot. And, Will, you know what the, what the Pacific Northwest is like. You got 15-foot oh, visibility. Yeah. <laughs> if <laughs> so, you're lucky. If, if you're lucky. lucky, yeah, yeah. It's all this brushy stuff. And, and there's another tree that had just been snapped. It was fresh. And it was probably about eight inches in diameter and about eight or feet, eight, eight and a half feet up. It had just been snapped over for re very, very recently. So when we get back to the truck, my buddy goes, listen, I don't mean to be hard, but don't ask. I'm never coming back here. <laughs> <laughs> and I tested him on that like three times. He, no, no. You're listening to Yowie Central on the best little station in the nation, 94.9 Main FM. 
Timus tracked the creatures there fairly often. And um, at his house, he showed me a bunch of these little sticks. He had piles of them. You know, there'd maybe be a dozen in a pile. And, and I wasn't real impressed because they weren't very big. They were maybe an inch thick and, and they were broken. And he said, you know, we were following these tracks one time and uh, these Sasquatch tracks. And then every once in a while, I'd see one of these, you know, the, 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 this piece of wood would be broken and twisted over itself. And I thought, well, you know, thinking to myself, I'm not impressed with that because that could be anything. Or, or people could have done it, you know what I mean? Uh, so I kept it in the back of my mind. So fast forward to about 1991. I had seen this. I know there was a guy who told me um, where he'd had a couple of sightings in this area. And it wasn't far from where I had my second sighting in the late 80s uh, in southern Washington, south of Mount St. Helens. And... Uh, there's a river there called the Washougal River. Getting into the headwaters is extremely difficult. And I was I was a cavalry scout in the Army, so my job was to do reconnaissance. And I used to be pretty good at doing that stuff, going cross-country and, and learning my way, you know, through different routes. But we got into there, and, and the first obstacle that kept us out of there were, you know, these rock walls that were sheer rock faces on either side of the river, um, that went up two, 300 feet high. There was no way of getting around those and, and it took us five times to finally get into the watershed. So we get in there and there really wasn't anything dramatic to see. It was just, you know, kind of a large base. And so there was, uh, another terrain feature called a saddle that divided this drainage system from an adjacent drainage system. And there was a lot of sighting reports on either side of the saddle. So I thought, well, Maybe the creatures are using this saddle as sort of a conduit between the two drainage systems. So we started hiking up that. And we get about, oh, on the map, it was about the 2,200 foot level, you know, in elevation. And we decided to stop and take a break because it was fairly steep going. And I happened to see this young Doug fir tree. Now, this was this was pretty much... It wasn't old growth. It was second growth timber, but it was pretty big. It had been probably, you know, 100 years since the timber had been cut in that area. <clears throat> so the timber was pretty large, and, and it, was a, it was a closed canopy. It was, you know, pretty well protected from weather. And this was the middle of July, so it had been warm for a while. And um, I found this, this tree was probably, oh, I don't know, 15 feet tall, maybe three inches through the trunk. And I, I had a tape measure with me. So I measured where this break was. It was snapped over 90 degrees, eight feet, one inches off the ground. No marking whatsoever anywhere in it. It was freshly done, had been done within two weeks. Could see no, there were no claw marks of any kind of animal. Of course, a bear wouldn't be able to do that anyway. The only kind of an animal in the area that would be able to do something like that. And I've seen plenty of, you know, trees tore up by bear. So I knew that wasn't what it was, obviously. But um, we couldn't, we were kind of scratching our head trying to figure out what did that. It was, like I said, no bad weather. And it was in a protected area anyway, so weather wouldn't have got to it. I looked about 100 yards to the northeast, and I saw another one. So we walked over to that one. Broken exactly the same as the first one, almost within an inch. 
of the same height off the ground. And we looked off in about 100 yards in the same direction northeast. There was another one. We followed these until we got to about 13 of them. And I, and I looked at my watch and I said, well, you know, it's going to take us a long time to get out of this area. So we better get going now because we had a river to cross and some other things, you know, challenges to get out of there. So I, you know, I took pictures of all these things and I showed a, a friend of mine who was Klamath Indian and he kind of chuckled and he says, oh, you finally, you finally found those. <laughs> I said, okay, what are those? <laughs> and he, and he says, all right, he says, he says, that's, he says, that's the creature's territorial markings. He said, that's what they do in here. He says, what you found is the big, the big guy of the group telling the other ones, which way to go to the next feeding area. And I said, oh, okay. And, and when you see these things, you know, when, when you first realize what you're seeing, I mean, you know, growing up in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., um, it's heavily forested. You, you learn what all kinds of weather does to, to vegetation in that region. This is nothing like that. Uh, to the untrained eye, you, you wouldn't think twice about it. You'd go right by it and wouldn't even register because it's just part of the background. But once you see it and know what it is, then it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Um, you don't see it often, but when you do see one, you know right away what it is. Uh, and in here in Northern California, I found a, a little different version of that. Um, there was a group of ponderosa pine, probably you know, 15 or 20 trees, a little, little cluster. And they were the same, about the same size, probably, you know, 12 to 15 feet tall. Middle of July again. And the only tree that had any damage on it whatsoever was the one in the very middle of the group. And if you can imagine taking a, a wash rag and wringing it out, that's what the trunk of this tree looked like. It was, again, it was probably oh, close to three inches thick. And it was wrung so hard it, it, they, there were gaps a quarter inch wide completely through the trunk of the tree. You could see all the way through it. We when have we the same. Oregon, Sorry, go on. You go on. Oh, I, I was just going to say when we went to Oregon, we, we found a bunch of that stuff, but it was a little more dramatic this time. One of the trees, well, they were only cedar trees. They were damaged, and I've never seen them damage cedar trees. Usually it's a fir tree that they do this to. Uh, this was, these were cedar and only cedar. And there are a lot of different types of trees in that area, wouldn't you agree, Tom? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was only the cedar trees. And I, I can't remember how many of them we found in that whole area, but maybe, I don't know, would we find eight or ten of them like that? Yeah. And it was different, wasn't it? It was almost like, it was almost like done like in a violent rage. One of the trees was broken in three places, and it looked like it was exploded. And then the very top part that was, uh, and it was, again, it was a tree. It was probably about three inches thick. It was pushed over. Um, and I can't think, I should have, we should have measured it, I guess. But I'd say probably, oh, it was three quarters of the way from the base of the tree up is where the first break was. And then maybe another four feet up from there, it was broken again. And in the top part of the tree, all the limbs were pulled off that section i had never seen anything like that <clears throat> yeah the, the it idea. was it was sorry like on, a, it had a tantrum or something it, it was like it was done in anger yeah and the the idea the immense strength required to oh to incredible. do that 
to snap to twist timber like that. What is cedar? Cedar's a hardwood, isn't it? Not um, I'm not sure, Tom. Is it? It's, no, it's no, a cedar wood, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's categorized as a softwood. It's it's a uh, evergreen. Uh, it's kind of in the same family as you know, like the sequoias and redwoods. Uh-huh. Uh, if there's a botanist out there who corrects me, that's great. But but that's uh, they're kind of like um, you know, it's, it's an evergreen. It's not something any person's ever going to do. Yeah, I guarantee yeah, I that. would challenge anybody to go to your local hardware store. Now this thing is three inches, three and a half inches in diameter. Go to your hardware store, grab a broomstick, a wooden broomstick, one inch in diameter, grab it, and then snap it. The point is, if you well, can't challenge. grab, yeah, the challenge is if, if you can't snap a one inch wooden dowel, which is basically what a, you know, a broom handle is, yeah, and it's dead wood, this is live wood, three, three and a half inches the breaking strength is just, uh, you know, it's phenomenal. How long do you reckon that had been done before you got there? So it, it looked fresh. It was. It was within thirty days. Yep. Yeah, it was relatively fresh. Yeah, and how did that make you both feel at the time? Go, oh, <laughs> this looks like well, I, someone I was, seriously was, pissed off. I was fascinated. Of course, you know, that's, I, I'm more nosy than I am. I, I don't react to things till later, but <laughs> it, it wasn't until, um, was it the second night, Tom? No, that was the first night. That was the first night we got we, we heard, we, Yeah, we got surrounded, heard vocals, and, and they were attempting to draw us into what we thought was a trap, and, and we had to get out of there quickly. Oh, oh really? That's right. <laughs> so tell, you got to oh, tell yeah. me that story now. <laughs> Go ahead, was, Tom. I'll let you do that one. <laughs> it, it was two in the morning, and we're in the middle of this Pacific Northwest canopy up in the Cascades. And it's uh, a team, five of us are up there. And you can hear, and they're very subtle. I mean, these creatures, if they want to be quiet, they can be quiet, but they do make a little snap now and then. And you hear one up you know, on the upslope, which would be at that time was to our left. And then down on the downslope, it was to our right. And then they were behind us. And then they were in front of us. And they're making these vocalizations that were, and, and bear in mind, the creatures will, what would you say, I estimated they're between 50 to 70 yards in the timber up into the woods. Yeah, that's that's about what I'd say. Oh, and, and you forgot to mention this was right near the tree that I was talking about uh-huh. just a moment yes. ago. Yes, yeah, it was in the same proximity. And the sounds, the vocalizations that we're making were so loud that well, I'll just say it was an owl. They're making they're mimicking this owl, but it wasn't quite owl-like. And had it been an owl, that much timber, especially 70 yards in. That that sound would have been very attenuated, and you wouldn't have heard. But these were crystal clear. And then just seconds later, it's a little further up. So we go up there. Seconds later, it's a little further up. And it's about that time that we realize we're pretty far from the trucks. And well, and there were at least in. two. There were at least two makers of the vocals, and they weren't owls. Yeah, and they were definitely not owls. And and I thought it was three, but it's definitely two or three. It probably was three, yeah. And then the ones that weren't the owls were on 
to our right and to our left in the forest. So they're getting us in a pincher trap. And we had a guy with us who has experience with this. We'll just leave it at that. We'll leave it at that, yeah. And Yeah, and he just said, okay, we're right at the threshold. We're going to have an encounter. He said, we have to go now. Yeah, (laughs) yep, and that was... It was a uh, democratic decision that we all go now. <laughs> and, and we raced in two trucks down off that mountain at, at a high rate of speed. <laughs> right. <laughs> Changing your underwear on the way. <laughs> Abs, that's it. That's right. The underwear yeah. moment. <laughs> but, but you know what the thing is, is it's the reality of it. There's, there's, you know, if you're right in the middle of it and it's happening, it's it's very different than sitting here and just talking about it. Oh, absolutely. I can imagine that the the adrenaline dump into your system at the time would be quite intense too. Your heart rate, your heart would be racing. That situation wasn't so bad. When I was a teenager, we had a much worse one because we couldn't go anywhere. Yeah, right. Tell me this, about that. This was well. Well, this was after after you know Green and Hendon and. You know, they told me, they said, yeah, we want you to be our eyes and ears in this area. And I, you know, I'm all 17 and said, you know, absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm on board. So I got my buddies together and I said, look, we need to start looking and, and finding out what we can for these guys. You know, they're important. So one of the guys said, hey, well, there's there's been some stories about some weird screams going on out by um, the other side of uh, Fort Lewis, a military base there. And I said, okay, well, let's, you know, get permission for us to go out there and we'll go out there. So uh, four of us hiked the railroad tracks out, out by his place and out to this family by the name of Clark. So it was the Clark Ranch. And they said, oh, yeah, the screams are going on down, you know, over there towards the river. You guys, you know, you can, you're more than welcome to go on back there and do what you want to do. So we planned to go back and spend a couple of nights back there. Uh, so we hiked back through there and of course, like Tom mentioned earlier, you know, we, we never seem to have more than one flashlight and the batteries barely worked. So (laughs) (laughs) that's, that's what we had with us. So we get back there and it's about, it's dusk. So we figured, well, let's go ahead and make camp in this spot. And, um, we did that and we, we built a fire and we had this old canvas cabin tent that was about six feet tall and didn't have any floor in it. So, you know, of course, you know, you're teenagers, you're not really thinking ahead more than about 10 minutes of your life. So we didn't plan very well. So the four of us are sitting around talking and um, we hear this, we started to hear this scream and it was fairly close and it was loud. Um, and we're, we're like, what the heck, you know, and it was maybe just a couple hundred feet away from us. It wasn't very far. And then off at some distance you know, maybe a quarter of a mile, another one responded to it. And this kind of went on back and forth for a bit. We're thinking, holy cow, you know, what's going on? And because um, we had never heard this before. And then, you know, there were a million tree frogs croaking all around us. I mean, that time of year, there was just a lot. It was towards spring. And um, suddenly all, all of them would just stop instantaneously on one side of us. Like, what's going on? And then the other ones are still going, right? And then maybe to the next side of us, they'd stop over there. And then to our to our left, you know, then they'd stop there. And then they'd stop behind us. We're like, 
you could tell something was circling, but you couldn't hear it. And then maybe 20 minutes later or so, you know, you'd hear one or two frogs start croaking, then they would all start up again. And it'd be quiet for a while. And then the process would start over. And then at the same time, periodically, you'd hear these, this vocal exchange that we first heard. So we're just kind of monitoring what's going on, wondering, you know, because we're not seeing anything. And then one of the guys says, well, I'm getting tired. I want to get some sleep. And I said, well, we probably ought to work in pairs. You know, where two of us are up all the time to keep an eye on what's going on because we don't know what's out here. And uh, so we div- we divided up into pairs and, and his partner didn't want to go to sleep. So I said, look, just, just go lay down and get some sleep. We'll figure it out. Right. So he goes in the tent and, he, and he, we figured he gets in his sleeping bag and goes to sleep. So we're sitting there talking very quietly, listening. When we had, we're sitting between the tent and the fire. And we hear this rustling in the tent. So, you know, being teenagers, we're cracking jokes about what he might be doing in there. <laughs> <laughs> so all of a sudden, he just about tears the tent down. And he says, it's not very damn funny you guys messing with me while I'm trying to sleep. And we all kind of look at him surprised, like, well, shoot, that's that's a pretty funny idea, but none of us thought of it. <laughs> you know, we're wishing we would have thought of it. Uh, I said, look, you probably were just having a dream. He says, no, I wasn't dreaming. I said, well, how do you know? He says, because I didn't go to sleep. I've been laying here listening to you guys talk. I said, okay, look, if something really happened, there has to be some kind of physical evidence for it. So tell me what happened. He says, well, I was laying on my stomach, and I thought when you guys were reaching under the side of the tent, instead of coming in the front to disturb me, you know, trying to get something out of the packs. And he says, then I felt a hand on my lower back. And and he was a big guy. You know, we were all kind of small and skinny, but he was he was like, you know, 250 pounds. He was a big guy, right? And I said, well, show me on your back where this hand, he said it was a hand that, that he felt a hand on him. And it started to pull him out of the tent. And I said, well, tell me where the heel of the hand is, you know, at the wrist, you know, show me where that touched your, your body and then to the fing- end of the fingertips. And when he showed me, he said it, w- it would have been probably, you know, 15, 16 inches long. And I said, none of us have a hand that big. So obviously it wasn't us. So I said, well, give me the flashlight. Let's see if we can see proof of it. And I'll be doggone if there weren't a line of 18-inch footprints going from that side of the tent back to into the forest and then there was a big bowl like depression less than two feet behind where i was kneeling down where the thing apparently put its knee down into the dirt and so then we were on high alert after that i mean grabbing all the firewood we could the flashlight was useless so (laughs) we spent (laughs) we and then of course all this activity is going on and at one point uh my best friend milo he was the activity had gotten so loud and, and the stuff that was going on around us, uh, we were, the four of us were facing out in all four directions with our back to the fire. We were standing up next to the fire. And uh, my friend Milo, he was facing the tent. And at one point he wanted to ask me some questions. So he turns around and I'm kind of, kind of just listening with my ear, you know, my head turned a little bit. I'm trying to watch my direction. And when he turned back around, 
he jumps in the air and he goes, oh, blank. And we're, we all reacted immediately. Well, this creature had been standing behind the tent glaring at him. And he said it was a good two feet above that. So it was, you know, at least eight feet tall. And when he screamed, it just stepped back into the darkness. So we didn't see it. Right. But uh, I think by by around 4 a.m. or so, we ran out of firewood and we were all exhausted. So we all sat down with our backs against this big spruce log and with machetes and, you know, shoulder to shoulder thinking, well, if they come and get us, we're going to at least fight, fight it out to the death. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think they got bored with us and left. <laughs> <laughs> they realized you, you, know were, the you funny, were no threat. <laughs> right. But the funny thing about that place, and, and it sort of, I sort of got a little disheartened with John Green because I wrote him a letter and, and you know, we, we reported everything to him, him and to Hinden and um, that ever happened that we did. So I get a call after school one day that Green was in Seattle and he was on his way. He wanted to go out to the Clark Ranch. This was maybe two weeks after um, our incident. And he, he picked us up and took us out there. No sooner than we'd gotten there, we stepped out of the van. The Clark family was outside with us there. It was right at dusk and the screaming started and it was loud. And we still stood there just in awe for a few minutes. And then Green says, well, I have to get back home. Oh. And, you know, we didn't say anything. We got back in the van. He dropped us off and back to British Columbia went. And years later, I was at his house. And he says, you know, I'm still kicking myself for not bringing a recorder. And I thought, really? <laughs> you know, you, you could have got some really great audio. Because yeah. these things were screaming their heads off there. One thing I want to point out, and this was, you know, Will, when, when you and Milo and everybody else was there at the Clark Ranch, this thing, with total disregard to the fact that you guys have a fire going, and, and as I recall, you say you like to build fires that can be seen from outer space, right? Yeah, you can see it by satellite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in complete disregard to you guys, this thing comes up right to the tent, and puts its hand in the tent and starts to pull out this guy and you have no clue that it's there. Uh, and he said he, he, it started pulling him until he struggled. He says, then it let go. Yeah. No, I don't so, know what the relevance of that is, but it was, yeah, it was only two feet behind me and I didn't hear it. You had not a clue. Not a clue. And the, the area that you and I were at uh, about three weeks ago, what prompted part of what prompted all of us meeting there was a year earlier was one of the guys that was with us at that time. And one other guy, three of us were up in the same area, same location. And because two weeks earlier we had uh, my buddy, a different friend of mine and I were up there and, and he got growled at with this loud projected growl. It's very different than a, than a bear or any, or a mountain lion or anything else. And so this, these two buddies of mine, they come up there, and we spent the whole day up there. I mean, I saw a black bear, great, nice-looking creature. It's not what we're looking for. It's 102 degrees out. I don't know what 102 comes to, but it probably about 38, 39 degrees Celsius. Yeah, Yeah, very hot. And we spent the whole, whole day up there, and it was nothing. 
absolutely nothing. And, and I knew there was nothing here. It was just a complete dud. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, let's go vet this one area right across from, you know, it's across, across the road there. It's kind of like a little, uh, little miniature, little forested area. We spent an hour, hour and a half, and as we're leaving, I smelled a smell. And I, I noted it, and the other two guys said, where was it? We went back, and all of a sudden, it started. And now this, you could hear this twig snapping, and as we're leaving, the smell and the twig snaps are pacing us. And one of the guys, you know how you get like a well, corridor through the forest, looks in there, <clears throat> and he saw them. And he yelled. And, and again, this is its kind of funny, but he never, well, he never really calls these things Bigfoot, does he? he it, it rhymes with truckers. Yeah, he's got his own terminology. Yeah, right. yeah he's got, it's, it's, it's army vernacular. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But we got back to the truck, to where the two trucks were. And then there was a, like a connecting corridor and just for a nanosecond, I saw it as well. I, the speed with which it moves is just incredible. But, you know, the point of all this is that you can be so close to these things and they will, there's no indication of it whatsoever. And I think, um, is it Dean? Dean Harrison? Yeah. Okay. Him and his crew, uh, I think they clearly demonstrated that when they went up to one of their areas. Nothing around. The guy picks up the FLIR camera. Bam. He picks up two of them right there. So, And you didn't hear um, them arrive or leave. Right, right. Yep. They're just very, very stealthy. Yeah, incredibly stealthy. In fact, Buck, who, who took that footage also uh, about two weeks later, was looking through the camera and, again, not – he wasn't ready to press record. He was just having a look through – and he saw uh, one of these, you know, eight-foot similar profile to the footage from that, that thermal footage that they got, walk directly across the trail behind him, uh, eight-foot tall, massive, similar profile. He did not hear a thing. He caught it in the, in, through the camera was so startled he didn't press record. We'd always, we'd, you know, it happens all the time uh, to everybody, not just Buck. It, it, it's, people are so startled a lot of the time that they, they don't press record. But what he was marvelling at was that it was right there, so very close to him, and he didn't hear it at all. Um, yeah, exactly. And he was, so, he was so annoyed with himself that he didn't press record <laughs> as well. But, well, you know. Yeah, I, it's, you're just you're you're just caught up in the moment, and like I said, you're very startled. You're probably the anxiety levels pretty high, I would imagine. But Will, one of the things I want to comment was the Clark Ranch, and you and I get a chuckle out of this. It's either the crickets or the frogs, but they're the early warning system. <laughs> right? They absolutely are. I'm telling you. Yeah. They they stop and and Sarah, I think I sent you a funny picture of. Uh, the, the folks there, uh, oh, yes. thank goodness, the crickets finally stopped. <laughs> yes, I did. I loved that cartoon. That was awesome. <laughs> In fact, I shared that with my, I shared that on my Yowie Central Facebook group. It was a really good one. <laughs> Will and Tom from Creek Devil Podcast. You can check them out yourselves on YouTube. 
Remember, if you've had any strange and mysterious experiences and you'd like to come on the show and share your story with the Yowie Central listeners, let me know via yowiecentral at gmail.com or via the Yowie Central Facebook group. I love hearing your stories and I promise I won't think you're crazy. So hit me up. That's it this week, folks. Yowie Central will be back with part two of Will and Tom next week. Same time, same place on 94.9 Main FM. I'll catch you next week. Stay safe. Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.